So first of all, thank you for all braving this storm today to come out. It's great that it's raining so much. You know, it's, it's causing a lot of uh, hassle and uh, problems because of uh, falling debris and I'm riding along and uh, coming this morning and they, uh, I hear on the news it said, uh, you know, be alert if you live in the bottom of a canyon or the, the, between two canyons. Also, they said be alert if you're driving in the a lane that's nearest to a large hill. And then they also told about some big boulder falling down. You know, and you think, somebody, you know, all over the place, it's just rain, but all over the place people are riding and boulders fall down or things happen. I've been reading a lot, I'll talk to you about it later, I've been reading a lot of Stephen uh, Batchelor's books, and he's really, I, I like it very much, I'll tell you why, as they're into it a little bit later, but he talks about the most important uh, realization he thinks in, in the Buddha's realizations, what he's supposed to realize, and uh, he's, really the most important thing is contingency, that things are the way they are just because of everything else that is. He tells a story early on, he said uh, he, he was very much changed in his early life he said, well, 16. He said, I was 16 years old, and my mother was sitting at a kitchen table looking at old photographs with a cousin of hers. And she showed me a picture of a man in uh, fatigues, a man looking like he's, uh, uh, or, or looking like uh, khakis, uh, an army officer in, uh, uh, you know, when he's probably, so it might be a World War II army officer in England. And he said, uh, my mother showed me a picture that, uh, of a man in an army outfit. And she said, you know, if things had been different, he would have been your father. Looking at pictures with the cousin. So I come to find out, of course, that this young man that clearly his mother was interested in uh, did not survive the war. It's a, it's a sad moment. But they said he thought to himself at that moment, um, if he had been my father, though, I wouldn't be me. So, uh, and then he thought, well, and if I had the next sentence, he said, and I thought to myself, if, in fact, uh, the very sperm that was behind the one that fertilized that egg had been there first, I wouldn't be me. You know, all of my children are certainly different from each other, and they have the same parents. And he said, I began to think about everything, how everything is, you don't know, really. It's, it's, uh, some things are fairly dependable, and uh, uh, some of these rocks that are falling down on Highway 17 were probably there for decades, maybe hundreds of years, but now they've, today is the day they fall down, or branches fall down. For uh, a while, I used to tell the story of living in uh, uh, in Geyserville, actually. And we always used to bike from our house down this long country road to um, go anywhere. To, it's three miles from the highway. So to go anywhere at all, you had to go three miles. 
And one morning we went down the road, in our car actually, uh, and down the road to do something or other, and we came back an hour and a half later, and uh, hadn't been raining. There was a big, huge limb off an old, old oak tree that had fallen down and was blocking that road as we went back. It hadn't even been raining, wasn't particularly blowing. That oak tree had probably been there 100 years that somehow decided to fall down that limb in the hour and a half before we got home, that we were gone. And a bicyclist are going back and forth all the time on that road, and cars. And, you know, it, if that mountain would have been your father, we could have been under that limb. Somebody else could have been under that limb. Every time you read about somebody that a limb falls on, it just missed somebody else. And he said, one of the things that people try hard to do is to not think about that, because if you think about it, you think, you know, you can't be sure of anything. You can't be walking down a country lane, minding your business, boom. But actually, he said, really, it wakes you up to realizing that it's a, it's a great miracle that we're here, and how to, as long as the limb didn't fall yet, or the boulder fall yet, how to live today. He said, that's the big question. He says in his book, um, since we all know that we're going to die, but we don't know when, the question is, what should I do today? It's very interesting. So I want to talk to you more about that. How many people have never been here before? Oh, what's your name? Nicole. Nicole, where do you live? Uh-huh. I'm glad you decided to come. How come you decided to come today? Is it your birthday? <laughs> What's your name? <laughs> Ilona. I'm trying to think of the person who had such a great line to that. It probably was, who was it? Probably was Gloria Steinem. She would have said this. Maybe she didn't say it, but she should have. Somebody, uh, somebody said to her, uh, on some notable birthday, uh, you don't look 65. And she said, yes, I do. This is the way 65 looks. You know, who's to say, you know? Uh, anyway, happy birthday. Who else is here? Yeah. What's your name? And where do you live? In Argentina. Really? So you're here. Welcome. For a short time or a long time? Uh, for today and tomorrow. That's all. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Are you... I've been traveling around. Uh-huh. By yourself? With my family and my sister. You're here just with your family today? or? No, by myself. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How come you knew to come this morning? I'm happy that you're here. Are you going all over the place, or um, all, over. all over the United States? So um, I to... going to Big Sur. Are you taking a workshop there? Yeah. In what? In in Esalen. In what course?
I think that's great. It's a whole different season from Argentina now, is it? Welcome, I'm glad you're here. Who else is here? First time. What's your name? Laura. Laura. Have, are you also traveling? Uh, no, I'm, I live in Ottawa. Well, I'm glad you're here. Come again. Does everybody or somebody else is here the first time? I'm very glad you're here. Uh, my friend Ace is back. So I'll forget that, uh, if, I, if I forget to say, let's use the next minute to say hello to each other, he'll remind me. So let's use the next minute to say hello to each other. to tell you how to find my house, so yeah. stay afterwards, okay? Okay. One of the things that's a, a big topic of conversation um, everywhere, here, at least last week's and every place else, is um, people often ask, these are very troubling times, these are very difficult times, it's, it's not like usual. I don't remember a post-election season that's like this. Don't remember a pre-election season like it was. Um, and I remember a lot of really contentious elections, but not like this. And, and people are dismayed, and people say, how do you keep your mood up? My mood doesn't stay up. It's continually affronted. That's one of the things that people say, you know, I don't have... <laughs> I didn't mean to say this. Good. I hope it's not being... Well, it could be recorded. I heard it on KCBS, 
where people, where some, one of the commentators said, trying to stay up with the news these days is like watching an octopus put on its socks. So that <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Is that, is that better? Should I talk louder? Okay. Anyway, I don't have to repeat that because enough people laughed. <laughs> you didn't hear it, Ace? You can hear, okay. Uh, here's the thing. I think that what I'm really paying attention to these days is moments when my mood picks up. And when all of a sudden, for one reason or another, I feel uplifted. I had Laura arrange to play two ads from the Super Bowl, uh, both of which, they're, they're a minute and a minute and a half, so it's a, a, lot of, a, a lot of Laura's time to get all tooled up, so I'm going to ask her to play them twice. And I'm going to come down there and sit and watch them with you because uh, my daughter sent them to me, and she said, look at these ads, you'll feel better. And you feel better, and I feel better not only because I, uh, the ad is a, I, I think these are two good ads, but because I think that there are the the people in people in places that wield a certain amount of power, like the people who make the ads for the Super Bowl, are really interested in putting this ad in the public view. I've been watching for a while and noticing that the ads for some sort of a sleep number bed or something that I you know I don't want. I don't. Maybe you have a sleep number bed. Is definitely a middle older age. Uh, when I was watching cable TV, I was seeing that they have stuff that's really for older folks, by and large, the demographic. But I was really admiring that their ads, be more and more, are featuring uh, diverse ethnicities in their ads, including diverse ethnicities in the sleep number beds together. And I think to myself, this is a very good thing. They're not saying anything. They're selling beds. But in the meantime, people's visual is what they haven't been used to. And may this be the new visual for many people. I, I really feel uplifted by that. I feel that my grandchildren... My grandchildren are not surprised that rabbis are sometimes women. And neurosurgeons are sometimes women. But when I was a child, that was never true. So, uh, but then you get used to it, and it's not surprising. Um, anyway, these are two ads from there. I, I wanted to play them here just because I like them, and because there's more research showing that the mood of the mind before it begins to meditate is affected by the mood of the mind when the meditation begins. So after these two clips are shown twice, I'm going to come sit over there so I can see them. I won't say anything. Laura will turn off the clips and we'll just sit. And in your sitting, do whichever meditation practice you like to do for people who haven't been here before. And just feel your body sitting here and feel yourself breathing and feel uh, how it feels to listen to sounds. And the thoughts of the ads will flow through your mind. If it starts to rain heavily, you can listen to the rain. You can open your eyes and look at the rain. Really, the meditation practice is be here now in a relaxed and poised way and watch what happens. That's the meditation practice. But in order to condition the mind 
to meet the meditation practice in a good way, I'd like you to watch these two ads two times.
Pretty soon I'll ring the bell and this is the time at the end of our being quiet together that uh, people sometimes like to mention into the space people that they're particularly thinking about today. I'm actually thinking about my, um, my cousin Dina, who I called this morning, whose uh, 83rd birthday it is today. And she has, uh, she actually married my cousin, but they've been married a long time and survived all kinds of things, including the loss of a daughter. And so I was glad to talk to her this morning and to wish her happy birthday and many more. What are you thinking about this morning?
I just thought of uh, ending our quiet time by reading to you this uh, quote from Blaise Pascal, French philosopher. (coughs) I do not know who put me in the world, nor what the world is, nor what I am myself. I'm in terrible ignorance about everything. I do not know what my body is, or my senses, or my soul, or even that part of me which thinks what I am saying, which reflects on itself and everything, but knows itself no better than anything else. I see the terrifying spaces of the universe enclosing me, and I find myself attached to one corner of this expanse without knowing why I've been placed here rather than there, or why the life allotted me should be assigned to this moment rather than to another in all the eternity that preceded and will follow me. I think a lot about the fact that when we think about the eternity that it surrounds us and the infinite universe around us, it's true that we think about all that bigness of the universe and the troubles in the world, our world, this earth and the place that it is. And we think particularly about this small corner of this earth, this piece that we're, in which we find ourselves with these relatives and these stories and that we also don't know how come we're here, but we are with these people in this small corner of the whole universe that we're particularly attached to and how the mind in the, in the midst of wishing well not only for the whole world but for all beings everywhere feels particularly about the people that are our kin and the people who are in our small corner of the universe sharing our experience may all beings be accompanied by kin and people who share their experience. So that the infinitesimally small part we are of the whole cosmos is at least an accompanied one. I have a particular seat up here so that sometimes I just listen and keep my eyes closed and sometimes I open my eyes and I see that when people speak out their personal concern or joy in this moment that there are other people who smile or shake their heads in acknowledgement that they they actually know how that story think they know how that story feels because it's familiar to them and I think that if I look and if I don't look what I always feel from being here is accompanied that there, that we witness each other in this business of making it through
What was your experience of uh, seeing those little video clips? I, I, I can't counter that, yes, but the only thing that they do, and uh, some, I don't know how many million people see images of diversity at the same time. Poignant, isn't it? Because it could be, I mean, it is beautiful. And um, in the second video, which is Airbnb. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm happy that you, that you said that, Brahm. Um, I was... Um, what I thought of, interestingly enough, when you said... Somebody said everybody's selling something or using the whole marketing project is to cause people to do this way or that way. And I remember being in Washington, D.C. a year or two ago... Uh, doing some lobbying of Congress, uh, taking a lobbying workshop and then going with the Peace Alliance to lobby about a particular piece of legislation that uh, would uh, provide um, alternatives to uh, being arrested or held in juvenile halls, but mostly for adolescents, uh, that there would be alternative ways of restorative justice and um, anyway, while I was in Washington, I was on a panel with um, Tim Ryan, who's a, a, repre a representative from, uh, in Congress from uh, Ohio. And uh, mm -hmm. one of the ch was one of the challenges to uh, Nancy Pelosi, actually, for, for speaker... Uh, for leader, a uh, minority leader. Uh, and I think someday, actually, he's likely to be a w more well-known person. He wrote a book called Mindful Nation a couple of years ago that's very good. Anyway, I was on a panel with him, and uh, somebody, uh, we were talking about lobbying Congress and uh, talking about being a lobbyist. And I, somehow it came up over... Identify when you come in, you, you identify yourself. I really want to talk to you about Senate Bill something something, and um, so it's not it's not sneakily like or not not covertly not sneakily, covertly selling while showing something else. Uh, but it's talking about being a lobbyist, and he said everybody is lobbying all the time. Everybody's a lobbyist. He said. My, my eight-year-old has been lobbying me for a cell phone 
for a few days, you know, for a long period of time. So you try to convince somebody to do something. So in fact, people who have something to sell are lobbying all the time. But I'm trying to think that it makes a difference, that it's not, that uh, just as my, my grandchildren were not surprised to find that their rabbi was a woman, why not? That uh, in another generation, and millennials apparently with all kinds of, uh, well, they don't have so many different, they are skewed in their political uh, preferences. Um, actually in a way that makes me hopeful, but they are skewed, people have different views, but they have more and more, um, they're not so, they're not concerned with uh, uh, what ethnicity people are in the same, they don't notice it in the same way that we do. They're growing up with more diversity, it'll take a while, and certainly that doesn't mean that anybody should let up on their efforts to work for that, but I'd like to think that it's working a little bit, they're not as put out by people, the choices that people have about who they love and how they worship, like the Airbnb ad. I think it's a good thing, and they are ads. And Pepsi-Cola isn't good for you. Talk a lot about like the last thing you said after our meditation was you hope everybody will feel supported, and those ads were shown on such a broad scale that I hope that some people saw them and felt supported by mm. by those of us who care about all people and mm. you know because they might be feeling a little bit not supported right now. Mm-hmm. So I think the more broad-based support that everybody can feel, the better it'll be. Mm-hmm. And It might be that I am adding my own spin on it, and it might not be true, but I think to myself, Pepsi-Cola spent a lot of money on that ad and worked on it a long time, so they must be pretty sure that it's going to not repel people. They must be more sure that it's going to attract people than it's going to turn them away. They could be making a mistake. It might have turned off millions of people. But uh, I'm sure those same smart people who make ads must have figured out that more people will say, oh, look at this, I could have Pepsi Light or Pepsi Zero or whatever it is. But, uh, huh? Isn't it on you, Coca-Cola? Oh. <laughs> 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 okay, true problem. Yeah, and, I, and I'm not going to, and I, since I don't buy sugar drinks, I wouldn't, you know, be, I'm not moved to go out and buy anything. I'm just uh, thinking, oh, good, the times are changing. I hope. What were you going to say? Well, I, Barbara, I, go ahead. But at least the people that were advertising took a positive vein. And I think it was an intentional, both those ads and a couple others at the Super Bowl were intentionally against the climate that is being created. Mm -hmm. That it was very intentional to say we're not with Mm -hmm. that program. 
So I think that in many ways was a very wonderful thing. It's just another form of pushback against so. something that I is... I hope so. Vicki, were you going to say something? I'm glad to see you, Vicki. I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, I'd like to see you. Yeah, to come to Spirit Rock and to see two advertisements off of the Super Bowl lets me know that there, I, there are many opportunities where I, too, can be putting out what I'm lobbying for in unexpected places. So, <laughs> thank you. How many people watch the Super Bowl on Sunday? How many people didn't watch the Super Bowl on Sunday? Actually, they didn't watch one, <laughs> but not by much. <laughs> what are we going to ask? Ellen, what? Um, disseminate will be more reflected on a unified America and it didn't just appeal to the, Ameri the America that we know in California because mm -hmm. sometimes I forget more often than not now that we aren't really representative here mm -hmm. and there is there is diversity but mm -hmm. we know it in a different like your grandchildren know diversity I think than different than the children in other parts of this country mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so so let me tell you that when I go other places, like out of the state, to teach, not so much anymore, but until quite recently when I was doing that, those of you who've been on a retreat with me know that my way of ending a retreat is you have people stand in a big circle around the room, and they haven't been looking or talking at each other the whole time, so you have them stand in a whole circle around the room, and I invite them to look at each other and reflect on our different uh, ethnic heritages, because you can see, well, as we don't all look the same, I'm happy to say. And we're all not the same age. Oh, I'll show you something that I brought with me from my show and tell for today, so I, I better start telling, otherwise I won't have time to tell. Um, and, um, and then we all uh, do a, a, a cumulative uh, meta send out blessings to the whole world. Someday we'll do it here. Uh, someday when they're not so many, maybe today is the day, I don't know. Let's just see. But um, there's a point where I say, make a big circle around the room, everybody, and they haven't talked in a whole week, and they really have been not looking at each other, and then they're all in a circle. And I say, now let's all hold hands. And I do that. And then somebody will say, oh, California. So that, that, that's a very California thing. Let's all, all hold hands around the room. California, like that explains it. it. It's not an everyday thing all around the United States to say let's all hold hands with each other. Let me tell you what I really prepared to bring here today. It says here, see, watch the ads from the Super Bowl. We did that. And I have three remarks from the Buddha that I thought about all while making together what I was going to talk about today. And one of them, which I come back to frequently, is whatever the mind dwells on, whatever it ponders, whatever it dwells on by that is it shaped. And I'm very much intrigued by that because I think that 
uh, one of the effects of the barrage of, of news and the changing news that seems to be happening of whatever is that uh, it's bewildering to the world and it's also addicting because you know you don't know what's happening next. You know, so people are, I think, well, my friends report to me that, uh, that they say, well, I get home and I think I'm not turning on uh, cable news, but they do because it's kind of addictive. It's, a th it's theater, you know? It's bright and it's colorful and it's breaking news. Every two minutes, breaking news. It's the same breaking news that broke this morning or last night, but breaking news. And it's, it has a bewildering effect. And I think the mind becomes bewildered by whatever the mind ponders and dwells on, by that is it shaped. I really try very hard, and not always successfully, not to turn on the... I read the whole newspaper every day. Uh, well, most of it every day, but the whole first part of it. I read the failing New York Times. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I really... No, I shouldn't have said it, but I, I was mocking. I was mocking uh, because that, al that always tells lies. But anyway, I, li I read the New York Times every day because I think it's the true... It's the most factual thing that I can read. But I, what I really wanted to talk about is how are we going to keep our minds uh, at least balanced enough to make poised decisions. I shouldn't have done that. That wasn't nice. Erase it from the record. Uh, I want to talk about whatever the mind ponders and dwells on, by that is it shaped. <laughs> it falls into the category of wise-ass remarks, which is what I don't like on those cable news programs. I shouldn't purposely do it. By not clinging to fixed views, the end of the Metta Sutta says, the pure-hearted one, by not clinging to fixed views, the pure-hearted one being freed from being confused by shifting desires is not born again into this world. I understand not born again into this world, not in the sense of whether or not there's something from this life that comes back in another life. I just don't know about that. I'd like to claim, I've been reading a lot of Stephen Batchelor and I am identifying, instead of saying I don't believe it, I'm saying I'm an agnostic. I don't know. I don't know. And I'm following his lead also in not saying I believe. I believe this is true. Because how do I know about what I believe? For a long time, people believed that the earth was flat, and then it turned out that they were wrong. It's not flat. How do I know? Uh, but I, d I don't know is the answer. I don't know what happens after we die. I know some people think this, but other people think that, and other people think that. I don't know. I don't know. But I do think that I am reborn dozens of times a day when I get caught into a snit in my mind about something, I am reborn into suffering. If I see when I check my email that the email from somebody that I've been expecting and which I think was so important to have come is not there yet, I think to myself, well, I think phooey, that's one thing, that's not suffering. I think phooey, I wish it had come. If I think phooey, I wish it had come, what's the matter with that person? I don't know why I work with them. They never come through and I'm never going to work with them again. Probably two things that are both untrue, but both untrue, but the mind thinks outrageous things when it's startled. 
thinks whatever it wants to think. My friend Joseph Goldstein, who was my first major teacher, used to say the mind has a mind of its own. It thinks anything. Never going to come. It's, it's going to come, but not when I thought it was going to come. And in that moment, I am born, reborn into a hell realm where I'm suffering. Or a hell realm where I'm really uh, needy. <laughs> Every day, a whole bunch, I don't have to tell you, it comes in your mailbox too, a whole bunch of interesting uh, um, catalogs come in the mail. And I look at it and I say, I don't need any of this. But it's so interesting. And you start turning the pages. And you say, oh, look at these. This is just my size and this color. Look at that. This is so good. I don't need that. I mean, which is not to say don't look in the catalog, but watch your mind when you look in the catalog. It looks in it. Whoa, look at this. Could be great. Sometimes I buy things from catalogs if it's the right thing and I still like it and I wait some period of time and I think it over. Doesn't mean don't do anything. But if I don't do it, then I start thinking, aha, but if I don't call today, Though, if I have a rule, say I'm going to wait 24 hours, 48 hours, if I still need that, need, right, I'll, I'll call and order it. And I think, that, and during that time, I think to myself, maybe I shouldn't have waited because I'm a pretty small size and, you know, that they don't have so many probably. And probably they'll sell out of what I wanted in that particular color. I have wandered into a realm of, of neediness in a realm of poverty, in a realm of greed. <laughs> Especially when I do phone up or go online and they say, all gone, then I say, fully, then I'm in a realm of self-recrimination. It's just like what it is. We're wandering in and out of hell realms all the time. So I'm really thinking about that, about the... Uh, by not... by not clinging to fixed views. The biggest view that I have, I was particularly thinking about this for this week, and you can think about it. Maybe we'll have some time to talk about it. I was watching the views that I have about that I don't see. Uh, One of the the, uh, metaphors that's often used about that is you can't ask fish to report to you about the characteristics of water. You know, they don't know that. It is, you know, there is a thing as water. You know, that, that's just... One of the things that... Uh, maybe I'll read it to you because he says it so much better than I. I'm really very much taken with Stephen Batchelor books. I'm rereading all of them. I think sometimes maybe I'll tell you and we'll reread some chapters together and... Talk about them. Talking about myths. Whether the myths we inherit come from the, some of the mythologies, epic narratives that help us make sense of the world. And they say uh, monotheistic religions such as Judaism and Christianity and a non-theistic tradition such as Buddhism They share a view that a human life is fully intelligible only as part of an immense drama that transcends it. 
Buddhism has a story as well, even that it doesn't have a creator or a god, but there's a story. It's that we don't see, even we say, well, I don't subscribe to any of those stories. The, he says, we fail to see the myths that underpin our sense of who we are or the kind of universe we inhabit. I think to myself, uh, I've been thinking this, especially for the last couple of months, that I, I really need to look at the myth I have about the nature of people who don't vote the way I do, several of whom are in my family, not my immediate family. I'm <laughs> happy, happy to tell you, because it would be so difficult to live with people. I have a good friend, actually, who is married to a person who votes differently from the way she does. I really find that very honorable that she manages to, they manage, not to make that a sticking point in their marriage. They've been married a very long time in the face of that. But I have people in my family who I know, I, I know people who I respect a lot who vote differently from me. And in all of my adult life, when I run up against that, what I discover is I still have, as part of my belief system, that the way I vote is not only the correct choice at this point, but it's a better choice. It's a better choice. And that the ideology behind how I vote is a better ideology than the ideology on the other side. There's a book by, what's his name, Tom... political commentator, I've forgotten his name right now, talking about what are those streams of conservative and liberal and where do they come from, and uh, trying to present them non-judgmentally. But the fact is I have a judgment about, uh, even quite apart from the the, the people who are running for office, the ideology of, of conservative and progressive. Uh, and they not only seem to me different, but I, I have to see in myself that not only different, but one is good and one is not so good. And that's what I have to see, I want to see in myself, because it's incumbent on me, certainly it works in my family, the people who vote differently, who are in my family, I don't not like them because of it. I mean, I love them. I know them since we were way too young to vote. You know, they chose differently than how I do. I make space for them. I certainly behave myself with everybody, by the way. I don't. But I, I just have been tracking it in my own mind that I'm surprised all the time. Such a nice person votes otherwise. Can you imagine? (laughs) But the fact that I'm surprised really means that I don't expect that to happen. And really, that's a bias. It's an inherent bias that if I'm not careful, I, you know. I was saying that, uh, I was reading to you last week or the week before from uh, the experiment described uh, by Michael Lewis in, um, in Moneyball and then again in uh, the Undoing Project of the extraordinary uh, basketball player, what's his name? I've forgotten Chinese name, Ying, Ming. Yao Ming, 
who was not picked for a way late dra- until a way late draft because the pickers could not did not register the extreme virtuosity of his style because he's Asian. And it didn't go in their computer because that doesn't match up with their previous experience. And talking about, also on a, on a more alarming basis, um, the Jews in Europe who were given information about leave now before it's too late because Jews are being deported from cities and taken away to who knows what, something terrible, who had reports of that, didn't go when they could have gone because they couldn't imagine that that would happen because it wasn't part of their memory bank of imaginable things. So they actually couldn't believe that, and they didn't stay. So that's all very just important for me to be thinking about. What are my implicit biases that I don't know? And I look for them when I'm surprised. I say, wow, look at that. They voted that way. Huh. But I really wanted to talk also, uh, this is the third thing <coughs> I wanted to talk about. It's the only thing I actually am talking about these days, no matter what I dress it up in. I am convinced that the whole of our life experience is Dharma practice. Really, really, I want to be... Sh- I mean, you know this from knowing me over a period of time, that we people say I haven't practiced in a few years. They mean I didn't sit down and feel myself meditating on my breath or a mantra or a wish. I think we are practicing all the time because one of the things... That, one way to think about practicing is we're figuring out moment to moment, what am I going to do now? What's the motivation behind it? And how is this going to fall in the world? We're always trying to make the best choice. I think what practice is, is clarifying, am I making the best choice? How clear is my mind? That's what we're practicing. So we can practice on a zafu as well, or uh, as we're taking a contemplative walk, we practice in the world. We look at the world and think, wait a minute, what should I do now? Not even the whole world, but moments of world. What can I learn from this situation? By the way, the, the proof text for that is the step in the Eightfold Path called wise effort. Because wise effort, in the explanation of what's wise effort, is it's the effort to ascertain, think about, figure out, as you're about to do something, is this going to be in the direction of happiness and... Um, what's the word that they use... Uh, not salubrious, yeah. Uh, wait, 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 wait. It's a better word for that. Um, wholesome. Thank you very much. <laughs> is this going to lead to a wholesome end? Is this a wholesome mind state that's going to create, or is this an unwholesome? A wholesome would mean generous, uh, not racked by uh, guilt. Uh, if I do this, not uh, upset by having created suffering. And obviously the other thing is to know about that I am creating suffering. The other parts of the injunction for wise effort is if I'm doing that, to stop. Or if I'm in the middle of a realm of greed or confusion or anger, to say, wait a minute, I'm in a realm. I'll I'll see if I can take that out of my mind and do something else. 
It's easy to change it. It's easy to, no, it's not easy. It is my practice to watch these days for the momentary shifts in mind state to see that I didn't miss one. I left home this morning, and I have a friend in, um, in Washington, D.C. This is not talking bad on my friend. I love her. She gets up three hours before I do, because it's three hours earlier in D.C., and she reads the New York Times three hours before I do, and she sends me links to it in my, in my, in my cell phone. So when I'm up and finished meditating, I look at the, the messages, and there's Betty directing me to alarming and terrifying and upsetting pieces of today's newspaper, which I didn't look at before I came. But anyway, you get reactive. To, I felt reactive about it. And I got in my car and it was pouring because I came a couple of hours ago to be on that teleconference call. So it's pouring and I'm driving down my street and thinking all these kind of thoughts, feeling a little bit down about it, thinking, ah. Oh. Anyway, I come to the corner and there's a crossing guard standing on the corner waiting for the kids to come to school. And he's wearing waiters on his feet and he's wearing a tremendous raincoat and a big hat and a huge golf umbrella and he's standing because it was just, it was early so there weren't even children coming that early but he's on the corner in case standing out on the little piece, whatever you call that raised up piece of sidewalk where the post is for the lights and with his little sign, he's got this umbrella here and his sign about stop, slow, over here. And it really was a torrential downpour. This guy is an older man. I think that's the kind of people who take those jobs. And there he is, and I realize that I've never really looked at him. He's been there for a while. But I just drive by him, and I see how sweet he's helping the children across the street. I looked at him this morning, I realized how many times I rode by him, maybe in other rainstorms, and I didn't think, bravo on you, may you have a good day. I could have thought that, which I thought today, which lifted me up a lot. Actually, I pulled down my window, and uh, <laughs> I said, you know, you've been here a while, how long are you standing here? He said, 10 years I've had this job. So here's this guy, and truth to tell, he's an old guy, and he's standing in this rain, with his umbrella, with his sign, and I've seen him helping people and kids on, 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 on two-wheelers, but little kids who are just getting used to it, help, watching them go across. And all of a sudden, I felt a lot of affection for him and good for him, and I think, you know, may you be well, may you be happy, may you be warm and dry. And then I you know, drove around the corner and continued here, and I realized that my whole mind was much better. From that moment, of noticing him and feeling a moment of empathic feeling and going for it, roll down the window, talk to him, magnify the feeling by having a conversation with him. It's like you notice a break in the clouds, I'm in a glum, and here's an opportunity to come out of the clouds for a little bit, and you do it. So I'm not saying that you know that was so great because I knew how to do it, but I think we could all do it all the time. I went, now I here's my proof text. I went to the... Um, uh, he listened to the, to the San Francisco Symphony on Sunday afternoon. And they were doing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. How many of you know Beethoven's Ninth Symphony? So you know that it uh, ends with what? 
Ode to Joy. Marty can sing pretty well. Can you sing, Marty? Sing a, sing a beginning to that. Terrific. And you know it in German, too. So we could talk about a lot of things. First of all, about what this, and I'm just going to do this, and this could be a whole thing about talking about joy and how joy lifts you up. Joy, beautiful, godlike spark, daughter of Elysium, drunk as with fire, we step into your sacred presence. Your magic reunites what custom segregates, and men become brothers beneath your soft wings. Alle Menschen werden Brüder. So, 300, I don't know how many voices, it looks like 300, but a lot of voices in a big orchestra. And it's the fourth movement of the symphony, so it's an hour, more than an hour, uh, before they come to that last movement. And it's just, the whole thing is so uplifting. So everybody's really, I, I think they are, I am transfixed by the whole thing. And it's, you know, sensory overwhelming in the, in the best kind of a way. And I realized, flickeringly, while it was happening, I'm really thrilled. And I realized I'm really thrilled. I didn't like sit and dwell on that because I would have missed, but when I thought about it, I thought, you know, I'm glad I noticed because otherwise, because what I can say about that is it's, the world is the same before I went into that concert and when I came out of it. But for an hour and 20 minutes, I was thrilled. And that it's possible to allow your mind to do that. It's not getting, the world is not getting worse because I wasn't fretting over it for that one hour and 40 minutes because I wasn't minding my end of the gloom and doom. And that it was good for me. Any more stories about that. But I, I wanted to say you could be anywhere and learn from what's going on. Like, it could just be great. But I thought about that. That lifted me way up. Not to speak of Herbert Blumstadt conducted it. Mr. Blumstadt is going to be 90 years old in July. And he conducted without a score. So that's not so surprising. He's probably conducted it a lot of times. But he's 90 years old, you know. But you, you, know, you don't need a score if you've done it a lot, you know. Here, you could sing it without a score and without it in front of you. And he looks, he looks 90. I mean, he looks like an old man, but he stands up. I mean, when you think 90-year-old man, he walks out in a, uh, in a firm way, and he gets up there on the conductor's podium. And for an hour and 20 minutes, without a baton, I like to watch conductors without a baton because they use their fingers. They point, you, 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 a little more you, a little bit this, da, da, da. For an hour and 20 minutes, he's doing that. No score, 90 years old. Everything about that is um, um, conducive to joy. And to let that happen. And say, this is good for me, you know. Not everybody can go to the symphony in person. So, but we could, 
listen to records, listen to her music. It is, it is. And I'm thinking about um, when we do something like uh, you are undoubtedly watching the Super Bowl, bef- uh, which I did. We got out very early. It didn't go very, you know. So sh- anyway, we were home by the first quarter. But uh, so we had the, the, the symphony and the Super Bowl, so it was a big afternoon. But that to know it, I don't have to be, what you just said, I don't have to sit in this grief the whole time. When I think about my child is having a difficult time or my, my good friend who I'll go visit this afternoon who is now past 90 who fell down yet again and is really in tremendous pain, but I'll go visit her. And I won't feel down when I go visit her because we'll exchange the fact that we love each other, uh, that you do things and you know you're supposed to feel about them. My children are struggling. I feel bad, but I don't have to anguish about it. I have I just, just recently decided, I can't figure out if I got this from Stephen Batchelor or somebody else's translation, but I'm thinking that anguish is a much better word in English than suffering for, for dukkha. I, don't you think? Because there is a lot of suffering in the world. The, um, well, let me see if I can tell this in an order, because I want to tell you a story about the, the homeless people who was sitting. Anyway, I'm finish about the playbill, because I wanted to make a point that you could take a playbill, you could read the text, you could listen to the music if you're there. If you're not there, you can go on your computer and find a link to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and find a link to the fourth movement of Beethoven's Ninth and turn up your computer very loud. So nowadays we're in a magic world where the symphony can come to you. Uh, the cover of the playbill this, this time, which, I don't know, I suppose it's intentional that they took this particular picture of members of the chorus, but I can see it up close, and I can see this person is Asian. This person has darker skin, brownish skin, brown skin. This person has pink skin. This person has a young face. This person has an old face. They have, every, they have old and young and different color faces and different shape facial features, and they're all singing. And nobody's thinking about how am I different from the person next to me? They're all singing together. They've, and I met one of the singers actually walking to our car afterwards. Uh, I'm walking along, I was feeling so elated, and she's walking along next to me. And I said, that was great, wasn't it? And she said, yes, it was. I sang in it. And this was our fourth performance. She said, I think it was the best of all of them. And then you have a moment of recreate it. You get a high off 
you get a, a kind of um, uh, empathic high of how excited that she is. That we, that's what we do as human beings. We have the possibility to enjoy other people's <laughs> at the end of the Super Bowl, probably people were hysterical with uh, with uh, with their with their uh, teammates. They certainly were with their teammates for having pulled off that kind of a last-minute win. I always feel a little bit bad about. I felt bad that the Falcons didn't win. They got such a big start. I thought they feel bad, I'd like to radiate to them the. Uh, the message that another time will come, that you know, everybody it's a game, somebody has to win, you know, it's at the end of the world. You know, but uh, but uh, when the team members are all hugging each other or you know, all elated, they're not thinking, you I'm going to hug a lot and you I'm hugging less because I don't like you so much. Everybody hugs everybody. They, it's joy. It's, a, it's an example of, I, I think that's probably the most homely example of, of Schiller's uh, <laughs> uh, creation, where it says, all men become brothers beneath your soft wings. Your magic, under the soft wings of joy, your magic reunites what custom segregates. Our mind segregates more than anything else. You know, this person I don't like, this person I like a little more, this person, even when we teach metta, we say, think about somebody you love a lot, not so much, a little less, a little less. But when you're excited, you forget this one. This You hug everybody the same. That's a very homely example. So what I wanted to say is you could look at the outside of this and think, this is how people can be. They can sing together. That's one of the things we can do. All kinds of people can sing together. And you can look at the text, you can listen to the music. You can look at this picture, which you can't see from there, but it's, it's an etching of Beethoven. Uh, looks like Beethoven, kind of, with a kind of scowling face. Uh, in the middle of the orchestra, um, it says in the, uh, in the picture that this is a depiction of the first performance of the Ninth Symphony, which happened in 1824, Beethoven was not aware of the public's applause until he was led to the front to see the clapping hands. Beethoven was deaf, and he wrote it when he was deaf. And he did not know that everybody was applauding until they brought him up to the front and turned him around. And I look at him, and I think, how poignant is that, you know? How, how poignant is that, that you should be able to create such a great oral masterpiece, and you can't hear it? Beverly Sills's child, one of her children, Beverly Sills's one of her, I think she had one son, and he was born deaf. So he never heard his mother sing. It's just, it's not, it's, it's not, it's poignant. And I think it's poignant in the same way, it's, a, it's another explanation of dukkha. Things don't work out in the way, it, it's not, uh, like when, when, it, Children say it's not fair. It's not fair. Every how things come out. This book I've been reading, by the way, has been uh, "Living with the Devil" by Stephen Batchelor. He's talking about uh, that things, the contingency of everything, 
You don't know when, when, when you're coming home. The infinite poignant beauty of creation is inseparable from its diabolic destructiveness. How to live in such a turbulent world like what the one we have with wisdom, tolerance, empathy, care, and nonviolence is what saints and philosophers have struggled over centuries to articulate. He goes on, by the way, to say, I'll, I'll talk more about this next time, I do not believe in God any more than I believe in Hamlet, but this does not mean that either God or Hamlet has nothing of value to say. And that's, a, that's an important thing to say. So that He also points out that uh, there was a fear after the Enlightenment, uh, after the Enlightenment, uh, which is around 1800, I suppose. I'm trying to think of Rousseau and Voltaire. And, but after it widely, spread, it widely spread in the Western world that people are saying there is no God up there, this is it. Uh, it was a fear that people wouldn't behave if they thought there wasn't a God that you need to have something that's God. Or uh, my friend uh, Guy Armstrong said you put in a, you put in a karma myth. Uh, karma means things happen, but I think the karma myth is that the, uh, the misbehaviors in this life are you going to suffer from in the next life. That's a karma myth. That, that karma myths, and you either go to heaven or hell myth, are there because societies felt there would be no way to hold people together from misbehaving. But that's not true. People don't, people don't misbehave because something in most people keeps them from not misbehaving. I'm thinking a lot. I don't even want to get too involved in it today because it's a really a, a, a complex thinking. I want to bring you along with me. Am I here next week? I think so. Good. Then I finish next week, or we don't, we finish never, we keep talking about it. But I think to myself, is it true, is one of the biases that I don't see in my mind that people really aren't fundamentally good? I love to teach that. Say when the mind is quiet and we're relaxed, we do the right thing. How many people think that's true? You know, I brought it up with my peer group that's been meeting. I meet with half a dozen other Buddhist teachers once every two months. We spend a day together, all all traditions, talk about things. The last time I said, listen, I'm a little bit thinking about whether that's really true. Do I have an inherent bias about that? Or is it really true when the mind is quiet? When the mind is calm and sees clearly, it behaves kindly. Or did I make that up? Is that an inherent bias of having grown up in uh, a, a Western tradition that had moral values in the middle of it? So people said, no, 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 that's my experience as well. When I sit down quietly, when I meditate, things that I messed up on, that I forgot to do, they come up. There's a, there's a spontaneous moral inventory. Everybody said, yes, yes, spontaneous moral inventory. It's certainly my experience. On the other hand, I don't know how, on what firm ground I am when I say, well, that's everybody's experience. It's my experience. Who knows if it's everybody's? So I don't know, so I'm thinking about that a lot. So I, I'll tell you one more story, and then we'll 
take it up from there because uh, maybe while you meditate this week, if you sit or you meditate or something, think about it. About while I'm, you know, if you're sitting and you think, oh, I forgot to phone so and so or something, see if that's true. So here's a story. I parked my car near the opera house and uh, I, I get out of it and uh, there's a, a bunch of tents right there on McAllister. There are a lot of tents and people are sleeping out on the street and there's a, there's a tent right there and a woman comes out of the tent and it was not raining at that moment but it was soon to rain again and she said, uh, I wonder if you could help me. I need uh, $12.50 to take the bus to go to Santa Rosa. And uh, I said, Santa Rosa? She said, yeah, my, I have a brother in Santa Rosa. I said, well, I have a phone. Could we call your brother? And she said, no, he, he, he's a handicapped person just like I am. And he, does, he can't answer the phone. He can't drive. I said, well, is the bus go near here? She said, yeah, bus goes on Van Ness. So I, in the moment, and this is, this is embarrassing to me, but I'll have a chance to tell you that too. So in the moment, I thought, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'm just on my way to the bookstore, which I was, and I'll pass by here right away. I go to the bookstore, which is a block away, and uh, I get money. And so that I can give her the, uh, the, the money and a little bit more also. Oh, on the way to the bookstore, I left out the most important part. I call my friend, Mary Kay Sweeney. Mary Kay Sweeney, you may know, is the director of the homeless program in Marin County. And she's also been my friend for, I don't know, three decades maybe, at least. And uh, she's done amazing work, really amazing. So I call Mary Kay, it's Sunday, she's at home, and I say, what should I do? I just met this woman, and I described the circumstances, and I said, um, she said, and I said, and she said, and I said. I said, what should I do? She said, well, why don't you give her the money? What have you got to lose? So I said, well, I said, I guess, sure. I said, you know, it went through my mind, and as I'm talking out loud, I'm realizing what's the matter with me. As I said, well, you know, I, I, I don't know about the bus, and she, I don't know if it goes here. She said, um, what does that matter? I said, all right, fine, I got it. I really got it, and I feel a little embarrassed that I even like, thought about it. So I go to the bookstore, and I get money, and I ask the clerk, uh, could you look up the Golden Gate bus schedule? Because he's got a big computer in front of him. It's so hard on my little phone. So can you look up the Golden Gate bus schedule to go from here to Santa Rosa? So he looks at it. He says, well, it doesn't go on a weekend. It's a commute bus. And uh, it leaves from the... He writes, he writes down for me. Lead, leaves from where... The, uh, down in the, uh, in the financial district at 3.15, 4.15, 5.15, 6.15 in the afternoon. Didn't seem like it was the right bus anyway because it doesn't make any stop. Well, no, no, fine, it would be the right bus, but it doesn't stop anywhere near here. But I had said to her, how are you going to get to the bus? She said, I'll just go stand by the bus stop. She's also got a dog, by the way, on a leash. 
So I go back to her. I get the, the instructions for where the bus is going to be. I go back. She comes out of her tent. She's very happy to see me. I give her the paper. She can read. I give her the money. And I said, uh, it doesn't go today because it only starts tomorrow and only in the afternoon. She said, okay, good. Thank you very much. And uh, that was the end. I gave her the money. I felt immediately better. Like That was clear to me because it didn't matter to me if she actually took the bus or didn't take the bus or went that minute to the corner and bought a meal for herself and her dog. It didn't matter what she did with the money. It mattered that she asked for it, and I gave it to her. Because I thought, when, when I rethought it over, I thought, the question of uh, what have you got to lose is I get to lose the peace of mind that I would have really lost had I not done it, which would have been you know, way more valuable than the money I gave her, that I would have thought that she was going to do something with it. And her situation was so dire worried about she's going to sit in that rain. Later on that afternoon, it started to rain so terribly. So she had a good tent. I, I actually noticed it was a good tent made by a good tent company. So I'm glad she had that. And she had a dog with her in her tent. One way or another, she had a tent. She had a dog with her. And she had some money to buy herself something to eat if she didn't have enough. And what have I got to lose? Is I got to lose my own sense of... I, I did what... She had a plan. That was the other thing Mary Kay had to say to me. She said, hey, she had a plan. It's, you know, and what, what unsaid is it's not my business to evaluate the plan. It's my business to respond. And what have I got to lose, really? I not only would have felt bad that afternoon, but I would have remembered it. I would have felt bad today from it. Don't you think? What do you think about that? I hesitated. I thought, oh, maybe she wounded her. It doesn't matter what you'll do with it, really. Is that, is that, is that a good story? Because the mind gets stuck in that kind of a way. And, I, and I, I said I hesitate about telling the story because I'm a little embarrassed that I didn't think about that right away. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What were you going to say, Marty? Well, I find that Definitely not part of my circle of existence, but I just step out and give something or just talk or meet their eyes. Whatever it is, I feel better. And I also know that just by their being noticed and acknowledged as a fellow human Mm. being, makes them feel better. Yeah, yeah. So it's an uplifting moment. Yeah, yeah. It is. Most of the times that I stop and talk to people uh, and whatever I give or they ask or whatever, they, uh, they end up saying, God bless you, and I, and I bless them back, and I feel good. Yeah, I've taken yeah. to... Um, in my car now, I have... Uh, about $20 singles. In the... Yeah. In, in the, <laughs> and so, so I'm ready, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. It, it feels good to just pull out 2 or $3 and hand yeah. 
hand it to someone. That's the right thing to do, I think. And look at the weather, you know. I was really happy that she had that tent. And I thought about it later on. And then, but, you know, that, it doesn't end, because then you think to yourself, why do we have, I, I forgot, I, I, uh, I actually, wait, 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 wait. I was at, uh, I was at a fundraising dinner for, home, for Homeward Bound, Monday night, right after the, the sun, right after Sunday is when I had this encounter. And Monday night I was at Homeward Bound, and seeing a, 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 a video of um, the background of Homeward Bound and the work that they do, and uh, which I, I have been on their list of supporters since the beginning. But um, it's really, uh, I, I think to myself, the bigger question is why do we have homeless people in this country in such big numbers? Why are there not places for people to go? And why are there not more social services? And why do we spend the money that we do as a country on armaments and, uh, uh, anyway. <laughs> Spirit Rock is having discussions about whether or not we can be political as teachers. Oh, this is not political, this is being human as a teacher. I want to tell you that I'm reading this book called Tribe on homecoming and belonging, and so far it's amazing. So I will have read it by next week, and I will have finished Living with the Devil by Stephen Batchelor. If you want to read along with me on any of those, you'll just have read along without me. And I, you don't have to, it's not a homework. But uh, anyway, may all beings here and everywhere have company and support and enough to eat and bus fare to get wherever they want to go. Amen. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.